Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Lale Bakhtiar, who has retranslated the sublime Quran. Now, there is a lot to learn about the Quran. Many of us are concerned about it. Many of us don't know anything about it except what we've heard. In fact, this translation by Dr. Lale Bakhtiar is going word for word into what the prophet said 1,500 years ago. This is the first time a woman has ever translated the Quran. It's a blockbuster and monumental task. You should also know that Dr. Bakhtiar has written over 50 books, not only the sublime Quran, but Sufi expressions of the mystic quest, moral healing through the most beautiful names, the practice of spiritual chivalry, it goes on and on. She is practically a theologian, and she is doing something very controversial but very necessary. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Lale Bakhtiar to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. The first thing I want to say is that you have tremendous courage to go into the ancient book of your culture and correct mistranslations along the way, 14 to 1500 years. I am sure that there's a lot of people who like you and there's a lot of people who don't like you. Do you agree? Yes, well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that you have a background in Sufism. Yes. Share a little bit about that. Well, the Sufi path is the mystical dimension of Islam, and it's uh, con where you concentrate more on self-development and introspection and trying to make yourself into a better person. So it's basically the moral kind of arm of Islam. And once you have done that, then you're ready for the world of intuition, which uh, if you get that far and, you know, struggle that hard, uh, then you uh, um, move towards, you know, sainthood or um, the the highest kind of level of the mystical dimension. So could we say that Sufism has influenced other traditions as well? Yes. I, well, Sufism has definitely been influenced by other traditions, um, such as Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and, um, you know, so many, uh, Christianity, Judaism, their mystical dimensions, like the Kabbalah and so forth. Uh, but it has also influenced other traditions as well. When did you get into Sufism? And the reason I'm asking you about this first is because my understanding through the Sufi books that I've read is that it can definitely guide your life. Yes, it definitely does. Uh, I was, uh, I met my teacher, my mentor, uh, Sayyid Hossein Nasser, who is now George Washington professor um at i mean professor university professor at george washington university i met him in iran many years ago when i lived there and uh he i uh asked me what religion i was and practiced and i said well i've grown up as a christian because um i my parents were divorced and i lived with my american mother here in the states so he said well now you're in iran and everyone expects you to be a muslim because your father is and so you need to you know, become a Muslim. And I said, well, I don't know anything about Islam. So he said, well, learn. And because he himself was a Sufi, he brought me into the Islamic path through Sufism, which is a different uh, way of bringing people into the faith. Uh, it's based on the love of God rather than the fear of God. And because um, I realized that I would not be losing Jesus, who was very important in my life, but I would be gaining Muhammad. So it was not a difficult step to take. 
um, I also realized that um, within the Sufi tradition, the um, within the Sufi tradition, you when I say love of God, uh, how it begins is by not doing what God has asked you not to do. Whereas when you're um, brought into Islam through the fear of God, you're taught this is what you have to do. You have to pray. You have to fast. You have to go on the pilgrimage. You, you know, you're given all these kind of um, rules, inju- rules and injunctions. And um, when it's first to begin by not doing what God has asked you not to do, which is basically in the Islamic tradition, not to gamble, not to drink alcohol, um, you know, not to take uh, interest from somebody, um, and not to eat pork, then you, you're holding back in a way, and it brings you, uh, in a in a sense, closer to God because you're actually holding back from doing something, and kind of withdrawing from the world rather than uh, immediately learning the prayers or learning to fast and so forth. So that's was how I came into Sufism. You have gone to great lengths in the Sublime Quran to explain all the details of how you went instead of translating from verses word for word. Share that with the public and talk about the moral equivalence. Bring the context of how this translation came about and the methodical way in which you went about it. Well, it began really, um, I was very disheartened by the other translations, not only uh, by the format, which was a real, which is, I find, a real problem but also by the fact that there's so many additional words. And for someone who wants to learn the Arabic, it's very difficult. You can never find exactly the Arabic word that you're giving an English equivalent for or you're interpreting with several words. So um, I realized, uh, because I'd had uh, a degree, my Ph.D. in educational, psycho- uh, educational psychology, so there we had studied instruments and the importance of reliability and consistency in a test that you might develop or in any kind of an instrument. And so I thought, well, this is what a sacred text also needs to have, is this internal consistency and reliability. So I realized the only way that you could get to that in a translation of the Quran, because I translated many books from the beginning to the end, and I realized that in the middle I had forgotten what word I'd used, and so I would come up with a synonym and so forth. So in this case, I began with the words instead of with the paragraphs. And um, I I wasn't sure that this method was going to work. It was kind of a scientific experiment. Like I had a hypothesis, you know, can I do this? Will this work? And so it took, uh, I was two years into it because I first had to transliterate all the Arabic words because my computer at that time didn't have an Arabic program. And there is an Arabic concordance. Uh, called the Mojim, and so I was using that uh, to begin translating the words that lists all the words uh, in the Quran in Arabic with the uh, small um, description of each of the verses. So I began there, and two years into it, I was talking to a friend and saying that, you know, I was doing the translation of the Quran, and I wasn't sure if my method was going to work and so forth. And so he said, oh, that's how they can't translate the King James Version of the Bible. I said, what? In the 17th century, they did this? And here I'm thinking that I've come up with a new method and, it, you know, it's been done. It was done so well. And so you can do it that way. And I was so, in, you know, heart, it was so heartwarming to hear this and encouraging to me that it, with the method that I had just kind of come across or kind of thought about actually uh, could work. 
so that's how I um, that's how I translated it, and then I presented it in a format where there are just a few Arabic words for every in- few English words, and so it's it's not a paragraph format where it's so hard to find the original word that you're looking for. That way, people can uh, much more with much more readily learn uh, the Arabic of the of the Quran. So that's it's kind of a mirror. Um, process where you mirror the the Arabic with the English. In the beginning, you talked about how translators of the Quran used to infuse their ideas and thoughts of the text rather than just translating the words. Yes. How do you know that? Well, because when you find just one word in Arabic and then you find like two sentences translation in English, you realize, well, this is a lot of extra information here that is not necessarily in the Arabic. It may be that that is an interpretation of what that word means, but that's not exactly what that word is. And uh, so then you have, um, and that system, that's called dynamic equivalence, but the, the method I use is called formal equivalence. So with formal equivalence, there's no bias or doctrinal information, or because no matter who the person is, even if they try to be objective, it is still their interpretation of the Quran, and it's not really a straight translation. So I felt that we needed to have at least one English version that would be from the woman's perspective. And I should say, um, I'm the first woman to do a critical translation of the Quran. There were others who, whose uh, translations are exactly like the men's translations. They didn't look at the verses from a woman's perspective. So uh, that make, that makes it um, different in that sense. Don't you think that in many of the holy books of our world, other than in Sufism, that a lot of women's input is missing? Definitely. I mean, it's only been in maybe the last 30 years that people have, uh, women have been, uh, you know, women have realized this and how important it is that women become scholars or, you know, uh, pay attention to the sacred text in whatever their tradition is, and look in there for something that's going to be extremely meaningful to them or something that uh, they realize could never have been uh, the way that it's been presented to them and that they it needs to be looked at from a woman's perspective. I mean, for instance, in the translation of the Quran, um, well, we may get into this, but in chapter 4, verse 34, where it says, um, husbands who fear res- um, disobedience, they translate it, means resistance, but they say, translate disobedience on the part of their wives. First admonish them, then uh, abandon their sleeping places, then beat them. So uh, this word, beat them, is a command in the Quran. Well, uh, when I, once I had finished the, the uh, translation of the Quran and I was going through it with a very critical eye, I came upon a verse, it's in chapter 2, verse 231, and it says husbands who want to divorce their wives uh, must do it honorably, and they cannot harm them. This verse has been in the Quran from the very beginning, but no one looked at it from a woman's perspective to suddenly say, wait a minute, a, a Muslim woman who is going to be divorced cannot be harmed, but a Muslim woman who wants to remain married does so under the threat of being beaten. Well, as a woman, I'm going to say, hey, give me a divorce. I don't want to be married. Yeah, so it, it goes against the whole concept of the Quran and the words of the prophet to encourage marriage and discourage divorce. It does the opposite. 
which is the definition, by the way, of a hypocrite in the Quran, is to command somebody to what's wrong and prohibit them from doing what is right. So this is uh, why women need to um, study their sacred texts and really look at them very, very carefully, because they will find that there are certain misinterpretations that have crept in that, um, are, are, you know, the sacred text may say something in the original, but how it's been interpreted by the male figures in, you know, throughout these centuries uh, is very different than when a woman looks at something. When you talk about the Sunnah of the Prophet, explain that to our audience. Well, that is the words and um, sayings of the Prophet that were that uh, his companions, he had over, over 1,500 companions, and uh, about 660 of them happened to have been women married to the men companions or, you know, women on their own. And um, then uh, within a couple of hundred years, these were all recorded uh, as to so-and-so, the companion said that the prophet said this, or at that time this verse was revealed. Many of them came from his wife, uh, Aisha. She has over 2,000 uh, traditions related from her as to what the prophet said or did. So the sunnah is the prophet's sayings and, um, and what he did. And this all came about in the oral tradition first. Yes, it was all part of the oral tradition and then later codified. You talk about the intent of the Quran. When you talk about that, is that you're looking at the translation based on the intent of how it was communicated, correct? Yes. Isn't that a intuitive thing to be listening for the intent of the Quran? I mean, you have to be intuitive to be listening for that, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, but when the word, you know, uh, if you use the same word, which I did, if the context allows, uh, allowed, then, uh, you know, you see this kind of uh, unity within the translation that um, then you, you know that this word has to be that word because the context, it makes sense in that context. And it's been used, you know, 10 other times in 10 other verses. It is a little bit intuitive, but it's also just kind of logical. Is it fair to say, I'm not trying to do a soundbite here, but in a way, by doing the studious body of work that took you seven years to get this communicated correctly, is it in fact then a repackaging of the words of the prophet or is it a repackaging of the translation? It will be received as a repackaging by maybe a lot of men who liked or who were connecting to that other interpretation and the license to beat women. They obviously don't agree. Uh, they still continue, but I have um, so many presented so many arguments on different YouTubes and in lectures and in debates and so forth, so that they're, it's not going to be much longer that they're going to be able to resist. Um, and also, in one case where a woman was in, in Buffalo, New York, she was trying to get custody of her children from a Muslim man, and she had been a convert to Islam. So she introduced the Sublime Quran into evidence to show that um, there is a different interpretation, that everybody's not on the same page. So just that in itself um, has been a great, um, you know, movement forward so that uh, women are no longer beaten in the name of God. But the translation, um, Muslims believe that it's the word of God that was revealed to the prophet, and he recited it, and then scribes wrote it down because he himself was unlettered. So the, and it's only the Arabic that is considered to be the sacred text. 
any translation or interpretation is considered to be just that, a translation or interpretation. For instance, in uh, Congress, when the congressmen, um, you know, take an oath to um, swear by, you know, to follow the Constitution, they're swearing on a translation of the Bible. And that would never do in the Islamic world. It has to be the original. So they need to swear on the Hebrew or the Greek of, of the original rather than um, the English translation. In the same way in the Islamic world, the, when you swear an oath, it has to be on the Arabic, not on the English translation or, you know, Swahili translation. Translation is just a translation. It's not um, considered to be the sacred. You don't get the same kind of blessings from reading it as you do if you recite or listen to the Arabic of the recitation. And Quranic itself, that word means recitation. So the oral tradition and the recitation of it and the listening to it in Arabic is how you receive the blessings. Why is it that women's voices are not allowed or encouraged to recite the Quran? This is pretty profound. Yes, it is. And women, um, in the, they're, they're different uh, interpretations, but within the um, Middle East, women are not allowed to um, recite the Quran in public. But this is not the case in Malaysia and Indonesia and in the Far East. So they say that a woman's voice, because it's so beautiful and so forth, it's going to, um, men are going to be distracted by it. And so uh, women can't do it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, kind of a reverse psychology that the men are supposed to be able to control themselves. But because of the traditional psychology and how things develop, men were only able to control themselves if they controlled someone on the outside. And that happened to be, you know, their wife or a woman. This is not the first place that the holy books have been coveted and women have been uninvited to partake in the sacred text. In many traditions, this has happened across the world in human history. Yes. I think it's true in Judaism. Women have had a very certain role it wasn't until the last maybe 50 years that they were really allowed to be more involved in the sacred text. Yes, that's true. Including even being able to be rabbis. Yes. Yeah. Or the Catholic tradition or the Christian tradition. Same thing. I mean, St. Paul says in the New Testament, women's is, women are to be silent. You know, they're not supposed to say anything. They're supposed to just, um, you know, be quiet. So it has, this has been the, the case for, um, you know, I would say probably most religious traditions, until you get into the mystical dimension, and then it becomes different. Right. In the beginning of the book, you say, I'm not a feminist translator, but that there's been little attention given to women's points of view for 1,500 years. And my question to you is, why did you feel the need to say that? Well, the feminist tradition is a Western tradition, and it certainly was successful and very good here in the West because we've seen how women's issues have moved more into the forefront. We're not quite there yet, but we're closer to it. Whereas that tradition doesn't exist within the Islamic world, and then you become labeled as someone who's been influenced by the West instead of someone who has arisen from within their own tradition. So within the Islamic tradition, we have a perfectly good example, which is called spiritual chivalry. And there, it's um, the whole goal of it is to become a fair and just person. So when you're fair and just, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Uh, this is how you look at things in a fair and just way. 
And there are many in, in the cases of this um, tradition about beating or not beating women, there are many men who agree that this is wrong, that this has been misinterpreted. So it's not just women talking about women. And right. the unfortunate point is that within the Middle East, there are many women who believe women should be beaten. So it's more like a human rights issue than yeah. a yeah, I get gender it. issue. I totally get it. Thank you for addressing that. Sure. Now, you say that most Muslims have a preference for the Muhammad Assad Quran. That and the Yusuf Ali, yes. Explain this to us. Uh, well, the reason why is because he has extensive footnotes. Yeah. And so does Yusuf Ali. They have extensive commentary, not only commentary in the translation, but also in the footnotes. And that's good, I mean, if you're uh, interested in pursuing something further. But I found before I had the translation of the Sublime Quran available that I would get lost in the footnotes and I would forget what the Quran had said. You know, I'm so absorbed into, oh, here's a number, I have to go and read this, and then back to the Quran and I've, I've lost my focus on the Quran. So I wanted to present a translation that didn't have any interpretation, that didn't have any footnotes, that was just straight the translation of the Quran, because I feel that people need to identify with it. And when you have all of these, and, it, and also because the Quran is eternal, so if it is eternal, it has to mean something to me today, not because of the history of it or the footnotes and so forth. Because also when you get so immersed in the footnotes, you begin, the, the Quran then begins to become a historic text rather than an eternal sacred text. And I didn't want that. I felt that the people needed an alternative. Interesting. What do you say about people who have read the original Quran, maybe the Muhammad Assad translation, and said it's very violent? There's a part of it that's oh, very well, violent. Talk to us about that. Well, that's, you know, there are verses, but some of those are very specific to the time of the prophet. And um, it's it, when it's it's only in uh, the Islamic tradition and based on the Quran, it's only someone can defend themselves. You cannot be the aggressor because over and over again, God says that he does not love the ones who exceed the limits or who commit aggression. So if there's somebody who is taking one of the verses and using it to commit aggression against innocent people, well, uh, that, that person has misread the, the translation of the Quran. I mean, the, um, you know, they, they've been brainwashed into thinking a way that the Quran doesn't say. Most of them do not understand the meaning of the Quran. They've only memorized the Arabic of it, and many of them don't even speak Arabic, but they've memorized the Quran. So there are verses in the Quran that you can misinterpret, if just like to beat women. I mean, that's a misinterpretation. So if you want, you can look at those and say, well, yeah, uh, you know, this is the way I understand it. But in the context of the whole of the Quran and the message of the Quran, those verses are only in if somebody attacks you, then you def you have a right to defend yourself, but not that you can go and commit aggression against someone else. Why do people say that there's parts of the original Quran that have to do with killing infidels and all that? Where does that come from? Now, I haven't read it, so I don't know. Right. Well, there's a word in the Quran. It's called kafir. And that has most often been interpreted to mean a disbeliever or an infidel. But I found that that exact same word, the very first understanding of it is to be ungrateful. 
So I have translated it in the Sublime Quran as being ungrateful to God. And in that way, we can all feel at some point in our lives that we forgot God, we were not grateful to him. And so it's not an insult to anybody. But for me to call someone an infidel or a disbeliever and to interpret that word that way, I feel goes against the meaning of that word and uh, is not what Islam is all about. Because the Prophet didn't come to bring a new religion, he came to confirm the religions of the past. And to label someone and say, you know, you're an infidel, therefore I can do what I want with you, is completely against the, um, you know, understanding of the Quran. If that person were to say, you're ungrateful to God, well, that's not something that you can kill somebody for. Because they're ungrateful to God, that's somebody you would uh, admonish or counsel and so forth. But you certainly wouldn't go and, and kill them because they're ungrateful to God. So these are, um, you know, there are places like that. And the, the people who are saying these things, most of them are just reading the translations like Muhammad Assad or Yusuf Ali, where, uh, you know, they're using the translation infidel or disbeliever. Now, that's an exclusive kind of understanding of the Quran, whereas mine is inclusive and tries to include all people within it rather than excluding people by labeling them and naming them this and that. You've made several corrections to language that has been misunderstood or used improperly. Have you had any threats against your life for doing this? No, I haven't, uh, because I believe, first of all, because it's in English, and most of the people who are, you know, on the borderline yeah. uh, don't read English. They're uh, they just reading, you know, they're in their own languages, Urdu or Punjabi or, uh, you know, Dari of Afghanistan or Arabic. And so they, they're not uh, really aware of it. Um, but the um, other reason is because I'm, I, can, I say I'm a believer and I am a believer. So they're, they're not able to do the same to someone who is a believer as they are to someone who steps outside the faith and says, I'm no longer a believer, I hate this faith, and this is ridiculous, and so forth and so on. So when you do that, then you kind of challenge the other people uh, to, um, you know, um, become antagonistic towards you. But there have been uh, places which have refused to carry, Islamic bookstores that have refused to carry the Sublime Quran. Um, and or, you know, by completely ignoring it or absolute or announcing that they're not going to carry this book in their bookstore because they do feel that it, you know, husbands are able to beat their wives or that the people uh, who are not um, believers then are infidels. What are your plans for the sublime Quran relative to making it available in Arabic directly? Well, um, it's, it, it is, the Arabic is available, it's because the word didn't change, it's just the understanding of that word, and the reason why that word has, uh, the word is Daraba, which um, is the word used to mean beat, and that has 26 meanings. So it needs to be an explanation in an in introduction, uh, rather than actually the Arabic. So that introduction needs to be translated into Arabic, and then, uh, presented to uh, different, um, you know, Arabic communities, Arabic-speaking communities, for them to be able to understand the logic behind why this has been misinterpreted. But it wouldn't be within the Arabic. But we are working on an Urdu translation where there, instead of saying beat them, it will say go away from them in Urdu language. 
Urdu is a beautiful language. Yes. Do you speak it? No. No, I don't. But I've, I hear it all the time. Because here at Tazi Publications, it was founded by uh, Pakistani. So they're all speaking Urdu all the time. Wow. Very beautiful language. Yeah. You said also Muslims do not have a monopoly on the word Allah. You yes. said Arabic-speaking Christians and Jews also refer to God as Allah. Now, where did you find that? Yeah, no, if you read the, um, I mean, the Torah may be in um, Hebrew, but it's also, if it's translated into other languages, for instance, into Arabic, for for um, the word God, which I believe would appear in there, they use the word Allah. And it's certainly in the New Testament, they use the word Allah. So, and in their conversations, they use the words Allah. There is, I understand, the Jewish tradition, the Orthodox, uh, can, don't say the word God. They right. put a dash there. Right. But um, in the other traditions, Jewish tradition, they do, I believe, say God, the word God, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, and um, Jehovah. Right. But wherever it is, they, in their language and in their conversations, in their prayers, they do use the word Allah in Arabic. Interesting. I wonder if that's a translation for that community. Do you know what I'm saying? It is, because that's yeah. the Arabic word for God. Got it. Got it. So, But that's why it shouldn't be transferred into English. It's very important that Muslims use the word God in English and not the word Allah. Because that, again, is it makes, you know, an exclusive issue that I'm better than you because my God's named Allah and yours is named God, for instance. I get it. You know, and so that's not the way it is. They feel that they're being very pious by using the word Allah, but they don't recognize that they're um, alienating people by doing that. Because so many places you go and speak and they say, well, I don't understand your religion. You have a different God. His name's Allah. And I don't understand that and so forth. So it, it's creating misunderstanding and sort of bringing us all together. And you also talk about speaking to people in their own language. So are you talking about establishing a universal reference to God, which is God? Is that what you well, mean? Yeah, in English, yeah. but in whatever language you're speaking, then it needs to be that word. Sure. Definitely. I mean, that's how we can all, or for instance, they, the names of the prophets, they use the Arabic names. So like Ibrahim or Musa. Well, when they're speaking to Christians or Jews, it's so clear to say Moses or Abraham. Then they, the person says, oh, I know them. They're in our sacred text, too. But when you say Ibrahim and Musa and Esau and so forth, it's like, well, what are you talking about? You see what I mean? It's, yeah. You create a distance again instead of like an interfaith kind of working together. Uh, we all believe in the same God, and so let's speak to each other in our own languages. You've written so many books. How did you have enough time to do this in your lifetime right up to this point? Seriously, that's a lot of books. Yeah, well, um, the last 16 years I've been here in Chicago, I, that's just basically what I do is just write books or do research or translate books or, you know, and um, my children are, I'm divorced and my children are all married and have children. And so I'm very blessed in that sense. And none of them live in Chicago. So I'm basically on my own seven days a week to just kind of, you know, uh, it's my passion, I should say. It's not work. It's passion. I'm really passionate about it. What do you think about people who say that in the Islamic culture, when a man wants to get a divorce, he just has to say it three times and it's done? Do you have any feeling about that? Something you want to share about that? Or Well, yes. I mean, that is um, the only, um, I mean, that's very difficult to try to, 
comprehend why a man would do that. But once he does that, his wife has to marry another man before he, she can marry him again. So that's kind of the deterrent for a husband not to, to think twice before he does that, um, because he may want to marry her again. He may want to go back to her, and she's going to have been with another man, and that within the, you know, the zeal or, you know, the testosterone-developed <laughs> male is very difficult for him to think that someone else is going to be sleeping with their wife uh, before they can go back to that person. And then, of course, uh, you know, she would be telling the other person what he was like and so forth and so on. And so the, all those kind of privacy details yes. would come out. And this, so this acts as a deterrent for a man not to do that. But it is, um, and then within the traditions, this has been modified, and certainly within the uh, laws of different countries, this has been modified. So it, it doesn't work exactly like that. Can a woman do the same with her husband? No, but she can get a divorce. It's called a, a cult, K-H-U-L, divorce. Uh, but she, at that point, has to give back the dowry. Whatever dowry she received, she needs to give it back in order to free herself uh, from the marriage. But today's in today's world, most people, they, for instance, they ask for a copy of the Quran, a woman for her dowry, or she asks for one rose or, you know, something like that. It's not a great uh, financial hardship on her to give that back to the person. And then she's able to get a divorce. You were living in Iran at the time your dad was alive. Is your dad still alive? No, no. He actually, yesterday was his 40th day of his death. He died 40 years ago. Wow. Yeah, a long time ago. Do you miss Iran? Do you go to Iran anymore? Well, uh, I hadn't. I had a house there that I had to sell, so I had to keep going and taking care of it till I could get it sold, which I finally did about four years ago. But then this year, um, my I have a granddaughter who's 21, and she had never met her father because he left my daughter when um, my granddaughter was three months old. So she had never met him, and. It just so happened around, she's in college now, but she had Thanksgiving vacation. So we figured, you know, she could miss two days of classes and we could go to Iran for nine days. So we did, and um, I went with my granddaughter just in November, and um, it was absolutely amazing. It was just a magical uh, experience because I was able to show her the culture and the traditions and the beautiful city of Isfahan and the mosque in um, Mashhad and the graveyards of her great-grandparents, and uh, it, was, it was absolutely a beautiful time. So um, I, 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 only, I have a lot of half-brothers and sisters and a lot of cousins were there. And so it was nice. We visited all of them, and I kind of introduced her to them. And she did meet her father, and her uh, Iranian grandmother had said, before I die, I want to dance with Samira. So my granddaughter danced with her, and... Uh, it was it was just a beautiful, very very blessed time. I hear it's actually very pretty. Yes, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. You have to ignore the government. You know, whoever it is, not everybody's happy here with the government, and right. certainly not everyone was happy with the Shah, and not everyone's happy with this one. And so, you know, politics. Um, when politics mixed with religion, it, religion really suffers, and that's unfortunate. But the culture and the civilization and the language and the literature and the history and those things all live on so we need to you know concentrate more on those i think your mom was a christian and how did she feel about your learning a different language and doing the kind of work that you've been doing with the quran 
Well, she also died just two years after my father, so it's been a long time. I hadn't been, uh, you know, translating the Quran or doing this work, um, you know, when she had been alive. But she was a very open-minded person, and she, um, you know, would not, when I became, she wasn't Catholic, I became Catholic, because I went to Catholic school. So she didn't mind at all, my uh, changing my faith, or she was just a very open-minded person, and whatever worked for someone, then they needed to try that, that would be fine with her. It didn't bother her. And uh, she was actually a nurse, a public health nurse, and worked at uh, President Truman's Point Four plan in Iran. But she had lived in Iran for 10 years, so she spoke fluent Persian. And um, then she worked with the tribal people, the Bakhtiari tribal people. And that was the other place that I went with my granddaughter in Iran. The, they've named a mountain area after my mother. It's called Helen's Protected Area because she so served the tribal people. And it's um, 40,000 square hectares, which is, I don't know, 400,000 square acres or something. And it's been, the United Nations has declared it a heritage, natural um, heritage. And so my granddaughter and I went there and we took some of the earth and brought it back and uh, took their, their uh, wild acorn uh, trees all over. And we brought some of those wild acorns back and gave everybody in the family like one acorn and a little of the earth. Uh, from my mother's um, um, protected area. So it's so amazing that, you know, here is Iran and America and so forth, and then they've named this mountain. And it was done by the people 30 years ago. It's not the wow. government did it. Wow. The people 30 years ago named this area Helen after my mother. How neat. Yeah. One of the things you say in the beginning of the Sublime Quran in the first 50 pages is translate into the target language. Explain that to the public. Okay, well, when um, the problem that the jurists have said with the translation, um, as I said at the beginning, this verse says, uh, husbands who fear disobedience on the part of their wives, first admonish them, then abandon their sleeping places, then beat them. So when you, um, when I looked at the word beat in Arabic, it has 26 meanings in that first form of the verb, and one of them is go away. So, but the, the word them is there, beat them, and them is feminine in the, because Arabic has uh, gender. So them means the wives because it's a feminine form of them. So in English, you can't say go away them. You have to say go away from them. And that's the problem of English. It's not a problem of, of anything else. But the jurists are saying you've made a transitive verb intransitive by using the word from and making it, them an indirect object instead of direct object. So you can't do it, and so this doesn't work. So what I found in my research was that this is only a problem with the English language, because in the Persian language, whether you say go away from them or you say beat them, it's exactly the same form. And in the Urdu language, whether you say go away from them or you say beat them, it's exactly the same form. So this is a problem with the target language, which is English. And uh, it's only with this verse that the jurists say, you, ha you know, are worried about being transitive. Whereas I found five other instances, uh, at least in the Quran, where in English you have to add a preposition. For You can't just say weigh them because you're talking about weigh for them. You're, you're selling something and you're going to weigh it for the customer. You have to add the word for right. or measure. You have to add the word for. 
so this is, you have to go with the target language. You can't make no sense in the target language because you're trying to keep the grammar of the, um, you know, original language. And as I said, in other languages, um, it doesn't, the verb, the verb doesn't change. The other point, thing I point out is that the prophet was unlettered. And um, so I don't think he sat back when this verse was revealed and said, well, let me see, is this verb transitive or intransitive? He understood it to mean go away, because when he had difficulty with his wives, that's exactly what he did. He went away. So the sunnah of the prophet is to go away from the wives and let the situation subside and then go back to them. And um, the, and we know from the uh, sunnah and the traditions that the prophet never beat anyone. So he, this is how he understood the word. So a lot of this is all communicated from the scribes. The scribes actually wrote everything down. But the prophet went over it with them every year during the month of fasting. He would spend time with the scribes going over the verses that they had written down. Then within 20 years of the prophet's death, it was compiled into a book form from those pieces that it had been written on, you know, like the bone or, or parchment or whatever different things they had written verses on. It seems that we're living at a time where there are new translations of the holy books. I'm interviewing Daniel Matt at the end of this month, uh-huh. who was redoing the Kabbalah, the Zohar, oh, translating wonderful. the Zohar directly from Aramaic. Oh, isn't that wonderful? He's got six volumes done and probably another six to go. Oh, that's excellent. And it's a painstaking task, very much like what yours has been. Yes. Of galactic proportion. Oh, that is so Isn't wonderful. that exciting? Yeah, that's very exciting. And by the way, the person who sponsored that project is from Chicago. Oh, who was it? <laughs> the Pritzkers did that. Priskers, yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, so this is very exciting. There's going to be so much difference in, in that uh, translation as compared to from the, was it originally in the Greek or Hebrew? It's or? originally in Hebrew, but again, it's all about the translators adding things, yes. you know, which I think is great. And he has great spiritual integrity, and he's going to go back and meticulously go through it with a fine-tooth comb. And I just think that kind of dedication, like the kind that you have, Yes. Is unparalleled. Yes. Yeah, it's so important, absolutely, for us to be able to get things straight. <laughs> I found out about you through the mosque in New York. Oh, okay. And originally, I think I saw a Twitter update from you, and that's how I found out about your work. Oh, yes. And very, very, very excited. I want you to talk a little bit about, if you wouldn't mind, the Enneagram and explain to the audience what the Enneagram is. And if you could share something about the Moral Healer's Handbook, The Psychology of Spiritual Chivalry, God's Will Be Done. Yes. Well, the um, the uh, Sufi, the Enneagram, the way it's being used today, uh, it originally began with the Sufi integration of the, of the ancient wisdom. And um, at, the, at the beginning in the 80s, when the Enneagram was becoming popular, people were willing to write in their uh, books that on the history of the Enneagram that it did come from the Sufi tradition. But as, um, you know, Islam became more and more denigrated in the words of, you know, so forth, that then people decided that they're going to totally ignore where it had come from originally and, um, and make up and kind of uh, do their own thing. Uh, from the oral tradition, they considered it to be oral tradition. So today, in today's world, a person goes and becomes a number in the Enneagram, whether you're Don Richard Rousseau or um, Helen Palmer or whoever your teacher is. But each one of the teachers have a different definition because of copyright. 
So, you know, how many ways can you describe a person and their personality? They've all had to do, you know, different ways and so forth and so on. But the original of it came from a man named Oscar Ichazo, who was from um, Bolivia, I believe. And um, he said, well, we've got nine numbers here, so we'll take the seven uh, vices, uh, you know, of the ca- in the Catholic tradition, and we'll add two, lust and anger. Well, that's, that completely distorted the original origins of it. And it may work for some people because any, sometimes anything works or there's also the placebo effect of things working. But the uh, Sufi, what the Sufi Enneagram is all about is that at any moment in time, any one of us could be one of those numbers. I mean, we could be showing jealousy. We could be showing inappropriate anger. We could be showing uh, cowardice and we could uh, be showing a lack of self-esteem in our response to any kind of a situation. So we're all, all those nine numbers. And the goal in the Sufi Enneagram is to reach the center point, which is zero, which is to be someone who is an egoless person who has learned to be fair and just. So within the Sufi tradition, anything that preceded Islam, uh, you know, like the whole Egyptian world or Greek world or Chinese world or Indian world, anything that preceded Islam in the 7th century is accepted into the Islamic tradition as long as it doesn't go against the oneness of God. That's why the Torah and the Gospels and so forth and so on are accepted within the Islamic tradition, as well as, um, you know, all of the, the Hindu tradition or the Buddhist tradition and so forth. So uh, Plato and Aristotle was, were considered to be a monotheist. And Plato had what he considered to be the four virtues of courage, temperance, wisdom, and justice. So those were then the basic um, coordinates of this uh, circle. I don't know if you've seen the Enneagram diagram. Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah, okay. So these are the four virtues that a person tries to attain. And these four virtues are in the inside of the circle, but the nine points are on either on the circle or on the outside of the circle. So you're trying to move towards courage, or you're trying to move towards wisdom or temperance, and then once you have held uh, courage in moderation or in balance or wisdom in balance or temperance in balance, then you're towards the center and you become a fair and just person, but only if another person says to you, you know, that was a very fair thing that you did. That decision you made was very fair. You didn't consider your own um, personal, I mean, your own personal opinion in this. Uh, so I would call you a fair and just person. Then you know that you've attained, um, you know, that center point and that zero point. And those nine points on the circumference are it's someone who has too much or too little of courage. Now, someone who has too much is reckless. Someone who has too little is cowardly. And the same is true of wisdom. Someone who has too much is a hypocrite. Someone who has too little is ignorant. Of, and, of course, because this was a religious symbol, it's ignorant of the existence of God, or a hypocrite is someone who's too much doubtful about God. And there were these six points, um, which are too much or too little, which are based in terms of quantity, like, you know, too much or too little. But it was in the 13th century when one of the Islamic uh, Neoplatonists, his name was Nasr al-Din Tusi, and he said, well, you know, when you're talking about too much or too little, you're talking about quantity. But actually, you can be lacking these four virtues in terms of quality as well. So that became three more added, three more points, and those became the nine points 
on the edge of the of the of the uh, circle, and uh, so you can have two. Um, you can be lacking in terms of quality of wisdom, and then you become someone who's ungrateful to God, or you could be lacking in terms of courage, uh, the quality of courage, and then you're a person who, for instance, is uh, fearful of anything other than God. So this was the the basic. These are the basic ideas behind the Sufi Enneagram, and it's it's got layers and it's built upon layers. So the first layer is the human soul, which is divided into the passions and reason. The passions consist of lust and anger, and the and uh, uh, the top part of this uh, circle it represents reason. So uh, reason leads to wisdom. Lust when you have it in control, leads to temperance. And uh, courage, when you have um, anger in control and moderation, then that leads to courage. So it all keeps, you know, it keeps building and stemming from the same idea. But then what happens is Rumi uh, said that, uh, so you have to use reason over your passions. The whole idea is to reason with yourself. Why was I jealous again? I have well, that person, I have to go and apologize. And after you've done that several times and apologize, um, you then uh, remember yourself and say, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, I'm not, I don't feel like apologizing again. I, and I know I would have to do that in order to morally heal. So that's basically the concept behind the uh, Moral Healer's Handbook. But the, then the virtues, uh, are re- the vices are replaced Within the, within the Islamic tradition, with the most beautiful names of God, which are also divided into three um, parts, depending on the courage, wisdom, or temperance. So, um, as you develop towards becoming a fair and just person, you also um, are developing the names of God, like forgiveness, repentance, acceptor of repentance, or compassion, mercy, um, and you're angry towards yourself. So the the uh, divine names are 99, and they're divided between those that are names of beauty and those that are names of majesty. The names of majesty, like vengeance and anger and so forth, are the ones that you um, orient towards yourself for having constantly, um, you know, um, said so-and-so to something, said something to so-and-so, and um, committed some kind of uh, vice, like jealousy or anger or um, you know, lust or whatever it happened to have been. So the you replace it with the most beautiful names, which is the third volume of the series called God's Will Be Done. Now what Rumi, so all of this is, sometimes it takes a whole lifetime, and this is the greater jihad, this is in the, within the Islamic tradition, because you're de- trying to develop yourself into a better person. So you you have to use reason over yourself, and it's called self-talk or you can also call it the ABC of the self, the affect, behavior, and cognition of the self. And um, certainly the modern world has developed excellent techniques for, you know, cognitive awareness or being aware of your behavior and changing it or, you know, being aware of your affect and your emotion and trying to become a better person and so forth. But it's all based on reasoning with the passions, constantly talking to yourself or listening to other people giving you advice and so forth and so on. But what Rumi says is once somebody has declared that you're a fair and just person and you see that you actually did make a fair and just decision, then you're at the zero point in that circle. 
and, and now you're ready to enter into the world of intuition. So all of this was the logical and rational world. Then you enter through the center point of the Sufi Enneagram circle into the world of intuition. And Rumi says, if you take reason with you into that world of intuition, it's like taking a candle into the noonday desert sun. It's totally useless. So you have to, after you struggle so hard to learn how to reason with yourself, you have to let go of reasoning in order to enter into the world of intuition. So that's basically a summary of the Sufi Enneagram. That was very clear. The Sufi order, the International Sufi Order of North America, is that contextually similar to what you're describing? No, none of the, none of the as far as I know, none of the um, present-day Sufi orders actually uh, use this technique. Um, it had originally been part of the Naqshbandi Sufis in Central Asia when Gurdjieff had discovered it. But even they themselves have lost uh, connection to it. So um, nobody is really using it in the Sufi uh, circles. So the Sufi Enneagram is like the mystical tradition and the ethical tradition? Yes, it's because Sufism is in three stages. So the first stage is, this uh, first and second stages basically are moral healing. The first one is when you work on yourself, and that's called moruwa. And the second one is Futua, where you actually join in with people while you're still working on yourself, hoping that you can help them and then by that way make yourself into a better person. And then the third stage is called Walia, which is sainthood. So the first two stages are de de deal with moral healing. And the third stage then is that world of intuition. Your Sufi teacher who brought you into the world of Sufism does he know the work that you've done on the Quran? Yes. Does he feel that what you've done is a moral and spiritual act to go back and to correct what has needed correction? Yes. Um, he's, I talked to him before when I first began the translation, and I showed him a part of it, and he said it was excellent. So with that in mind, um, I, you know, that's why I was able to move forward without any kind of reluctance on my part because someone had looked at it who's a great scholar and had said, you know, that, that it was good. Um, and um, he's, you know, he definitely understands and is very, uh, you know, supportive of the work that I do. Why did you name the book Moral Healer's Handbook, I get, but The Psychology of Spiritual Chivalry? That's an interesting byline to it. Right. Well, as I mentioned before that when I was talking about why I'm not a feminist, but I'm follow spiritual chivalry, that's the spiritual warrior. The person who practices the, the first two stages of Sufism, which are the moral stages, those people are called spiritual warriors. Uh, and the Quran calls the male fatah and the female fatat. And these two words are in the Quran. So this is the whole tradition of spiritual chivalry that's part of the Quran and the whole of the Islamic tradition. Do you think that if someone is not based in Islamic culture, that they will be able to appreciate this particular moral healer's handbook, the psychology of spiritual chivalry, or is it mostly for that culture of people? No, it's, this is a universal because it has to do with personality. Very often, for instance, I, I came up with the idea of the interfaith Enneagram because whether we're Christian, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever we are, we're all trying to become uh, you know, I mean, those that's what our traditions are teaching us, is to try to become better people, better human beings, better, uh, you know, to follow the golden rule kind of thing. So um, 
this is all, and it's the basis of this is also in the Catholic tradition of Thomas Aquinas and the Jewish tradition of Moses Maimonides. Many of the things that I mentioned, not only in Plato, but also within the uh, Christian theological theological history and the Jewish um, theological history, you're going to find the same concept. So we're all, instead of having interfaith dialogue where we try to talk about each other's theologies, we would have interfaith dialogue where we try to help each other develop morally and to morally heal, um, where we could be in, meet in small groups and we would discuss, you know, our traditions and how, uh, you know, we're trying to become fair and just people. It would be our goal. So it is something that's open to everybody. It's not specific to Islam at all. I think there can never be enough interfaith work in the absolutely, world. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the traditional media tends to highlight polarity and polarizes people yes. of all nations and backgrounds, both inadvertently and consciously, both. Yes. So to the extent we digest that as food for the soul, it makes it very difficult to be in the world with others. Yes, that's very true. Do you give lectures? Are you speaking at all? Or do you find that you have to kind of remain in Chicago? Yeah, No, I'm not able to anymore, really. I, I just really kind of remain in Chicago, other than to see, you know, go and visit my three children and eight grandchildren. Um, so I'm pretty busy just kind of trying to keep up with that. And I find I'm much better as a writer than I am as uh, a speaker. And I'm, I'm much more uh, introverted, and I prefer you know, not being in front of a group of people kind of thing. Unless I want them to tell me I'm fair and just, and then I'll go. (laughs) (laughs) You have a good personality, and you have the right spirit to have taken on the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much, offering. I really appreciate you coming to the show and want to ask you if there's anything else you wish to share with us or to say. Uh, No, I think basically we've covered everything. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to, listening to, and learning from Dr. Lale Bakhtiar. She is the author of The Sublime Quran and also 50 other books. And you can reach her by going to lalebakhtiar.com at L-A-L-E-H-B-A-K-H-T-I-A-R.com or you can go to the Sublime Quran, Q-U-R-A-N.com. Thank you so much for joining us and I look forward to meeting you someday in the East Coast when I'm out there. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. I do too. Pleasure.